0: Today's episode is made possible with support from Bremer Bank. Work with a banker who understands your business goals and how a strong banking relationship will help you achieve them. Work with Bremer Bank. Put Bremer to work for you today at bremer.com.
1: Yeah, I mean it's hard. There's no question. You know, like when you can't make enough beer, we always say that's a problem, but it's a good problem right when your challenge is, is trying to meet capacity and, and deal with that it's it's it has its own stresses <laughs> for sure so i mean this is a different one i mean the i don't know maybe that's just the way i am like it's always been stressful <laughs> for me from Twin
0: Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive and purpose and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor in chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine, coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship cultivating the next generation of problem solvers and innovators. The school offers undergraduate and graduate programs in entrepreneurship and corporate innovation, as well as community resources to support new ventures, family businesses, and corporate entrepreneurs. And now, by all means. Surly Brewing is named for the anger Omar Ansari used to feel when he walked into a bar and couldn't find a decent beer on tap. Makes you a little surly. That doesn't happen much today, with breweries in every town across America and hundreds of craft brew options at bars and stores. Omar started out as a home brewer. He built Surly into one of the big guys. There were some glorious years after Surly got the law changed in Minnesota and opened a $20 million brewery, tasting room, and entertainment complex in 2014. But also some struggles, an elevated dining concept that flopped diversification in the beverage market, and then the ultimate challenge, the pandemic. Closing the brewery led to furloughs and layoffs, and soon a move by Surly employees to unionize. It failed, but Surly did get accused by some of trying to block the effort. And that whole chapter has changed the way some consumers view the brand. It's part of the reason Omar is going back to his roots, getting out in the community, back into bars, talking about craft beer and the brand he built, which is definitely a story worth hearing over a beer, or if it's 11 a.m., something beer-adjacent.
1: I'm having a hop water, so hop it's a little water. early in the day to be hitting it hard.
0: Yes. You enjoy hops so much that you want water flavored. That's like correct.
1: Hops. Yeah. Hops makes everything better.
0: Is, it, <laughs> is that is that a popular seller? Is that a...
1: Yeah. Well, actually, it's uh, a product that we're going to have hit the market probably in about a month, huh. and we've had a really big demand for it for the people that have that have tried it out. So yeah. it's, um, you know, I, I think we're seeing a lot of that in, in beverages that... Uh, you know, I think it's called alternative adult beverages, you know, your kombuchas, your teas, all your RTDs, you know, your ready to drinks like high noon. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of other products that are getting out there that are stuff, you know, adults would drink Mm -hmm. um, that maybe don't have alcohol or different than some of our traditional, you know, just straight up wine, straight up beer products out there.
0: Yeah. So interesting. All right. Well, we'll talk more about that. I want to go back to the beginning. I know the Surly story is the stuff of legends, especially in, Minnesota and, and our bu- business community, but it's worth telling. I remember some of my earliest memories when our boys, we have boys the same age, were little. I remember going to uh, a picnic in the park in mm-hmm. Golden Valley and you were bringing coolers of beer and it was like you were just getting started.
1: Yeah, it's funny. Our, um, my twins just turned 18 and uh-huh. uh, you know they showed up the same week that the brewery was supposed to be delivered from the Dominican Republic. We bought a used <sighs> brewery uh-huh. And I remember telling my wife Becca, because uh, it was our we we'd had a, a son previously. and I said, honey, you know, there's a lot of doctors and nurses that are involved in in having these kids come out. <laughs> And I was there for the first one, and I didn't do a lot. Um, there's no one else there to unload the brewery, so if the container shows up, I probably need to go do that. <laughs> like, the kids are going to come out. If I'm there oh, or not. she must have loved that. And then she's like, "No." no. I'm like, "Okay, okay." <laughs> okay. I, luckily, they didn't show up the same day. Oh, thank. Uh, but there's a great photo of the tanks all outside, and Becca with two, uh-huh. uh, two baby baby uh, strollers.
0: Twin boys. Yeah. Wow. So,
1: yeah, they have it's been 18 years, so they've well, kind of grown up side by side.
0: Let's go back even further than that. You grew up um, with a, a father who built a business that you were thinking you would go into, wanted to go into. Set, set the scene. What yeah, was it? Yeah, when I was a little like?
1: kid, I um, mean, you know, I grew up, my, my parents were both immigrants. My mom's from Germany. My dad's from Pakistan. They met in Chicago and moved up to the Twin Cities, oh, 68. Um, they had a friend that worked at a business, and they went over to help help him out. My dad was an engineer, and uh, they bought that business a few years later with the equity in their car. <laughs> so it was definitely the you know that Horatio Alger story, that immigrant story of wanting to come to America, be you know build your own your own legacy, if you will, and and they came here to the city. So I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs of you know, when it's a small family business, there's a reason the family's in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they do every everyone all the time. You know, it was weekends, evenings, my summers were spent working there. So that's the original abrasive factory in Brooklyn Center, which is still going, which is where the brewery started.
0: Yeah. And did you like the idea of, I mean, did you, did you grow up thinking you wanted to, to yeah. take over the business?
1: Yeah, I did. When I was a kid, little kid, I'm like, I want to be like my dad and run this business. And, you know, then the teen years showed up in college. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I'm never mm. going to do that. And uh, I think I was a junior in college, and uh, we had a class. I was an environmental studies major. I had a class, and it was, I think, an engineering firm that showed up, and they talked about, like, here's what we do, and here are your jobs. And, and I kind of realized at that point, like, I got to get a job. Like, <laughs> well, like what am I going to do? Like, it was, you yeah. know, it's your junior year. It's sort of like, okay, now what? Yeah. And – I, I didn't really, you know, I didn't think law was going to be my thing. Or I didn't have, you know, it's lucky for those those kids that are like, I'm going to go into medicine or sure. legal or this or architect. I, I guess at that point I had kind of thought, you know, maybe I should go and, and work with my folks because that had been my dad's kind of hope that I would work there. It's a small business. A lot of the, the value of the brand was in his head of just knowing how to run it. It was a tiny place. so mm-hmm. So, yeah, I started working there. Part-time my senior year in college doing purchasing. And then right after that, started working full-time.
0: Mm-hmm. And did you like it?
1: Not particularly. <laughs> he was making, selling industrial abrasives. Yeah. It's not really a sexy. I mean, I don't know if you would be interviewing me <laughs> if we're talking about grinding <laughs> wheels right now.
0: Well, you never know.
1: You never know. I mean, not. I mean, 3M's right, down the, right mm-hmm. down the road. And obviously, they're a massive player in that. But it, it was an old Rust Bowl, Rust Belt type of industry. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the kind of thing you'd engineer out of your process if you could. Mm. And this is the way that you know most manufacturing had gone. It, the products became all imported. Most American manufacturers at that time were moving to Mexico. Hmm. So just the number of accounts we had just were less and less every year. I think when I started in 92 to like 10 years later, probably the top 10 accounts we had when I started, only one was left. Huh. And most of them just kind of... They either didn't need our products anymore because they engineered it out or they closed because they're all companies that you know foundries that poured metal, which is just not the kind of business yeah like is I don't think is what Americans want. Right you know
0: So in this same period of time, you were homebrewing beer just kind of as a hobby. was that?
1: Yeah, I got a homebrew kit from uh, Northern Home Brewer, mm-hmm. which uh, is another great Minnesota beer story. Um, my old girlfriend got me a homebrew kit. And I remember saying, "Great, just when I need another hobby." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, um, but she's from Milwaukee, so she persisted. And uh, went and got a homebrew kit from Northern Brewer. I think it was a brown ale, and did the directions. Brewed up my little apartment stove, and you know, about a month later, when we cracked the beer, I'm like, "Oh my god! Like this actually tastes good." Mm-hmm. And it was a bit of a surprise because at that point, I mean, we got to remember the listeners. Like this is sort of before the craft beer explosion. Sure. So I think kind of beer brewing is now much more, just much more of a commonplace thing. Like a lot of people have been in brew pubs. They kind of know what they like. They, they kind of maybe mm-hmm. been on a tour, get an idea. But, you know, for me, you know, that idea of beer came from St. Louis, Milwaukee, mm-hmm. Denver, right. Golden, Colorado, I should say. Yeah. And Summit was around two, of course, but, it, you know, I had never been there. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, like this actually turned out really well. This wasn't that complicated. And It was a hobby that was super fun. Uh, It's kind of a seasonal hobby for a lot of a lot of folks. It it goes well in the spring and the fall, just the way the fermentation stuff works. And and so it was a hobby that I would do for a while. I'd put it in the closet after a few bad batches, and then bring it out again, Mm -hmm. and uh, just on and off for a number of years. And my wife uh, Becca, she um, when her first son Max was born, when she went back to work, the way the schedule worked was I had I took care of Max on the weekends. Uh, She was working, so I. Was by myself with, with a baby every weekend, so I kind of got back into homebrewing because I had some weekends <laughs> to kill. So, okay. So, yeah, I started uh, homebrewing a bit more, and it just kind of kept, kept growing. I just Do you kept...
0: remember a moment when you were like, maybe this could be a business?
1: Well, the light bulb went off one day, literally, just like in a cartoon. I was sitting in my basement. It was a Saturday in January of 2004, and... Uh, I wasn't homebrewing that weekend. I was planning my homebrew for the next weekend. And I was looking through a catalog. And in the center of this catalog, the centerfold, if you will, from a company called More Beer out in California. And they were a homebrew supply store. And they also made homebrew equipment. They made little fermenters. They made little brewing hardware. And they had a three-barrel brewery for sale. So that's six kegs of beer. And they called it a homebrew for a bar or restaurant that wanted to add a brew pub or a homebrewer gone wild. (laughs) And it was, you know, literally the light bulb went off and I thought, you know, there was a price to it and it, you know, wasn't cheap, but it also wasn't, you know, a million dollars. And I thought, huh, I wonder if I could do that. And, you know, there's a, there's a term in, in homebrewing. One of the old ones is relax. Don't worry, have a homebrew. So, uh, well, even though I was in my robe, uh, I shortly cracked a homebrew after that and got out a yellow pad of paper and started writing down pros and cons of why I thought a brewery can make it in the twin cities. And, you know, I've been out West a lot playing ultimate and skiing and travel. And there's always, there were always so many more breweries out in Montana and mm-hmm. Colorado, Washington, Oregon. And it just seemed like, man, there's there's one brewery here in town, one one big brewery and that's it. And there's just a lot of styles that weren't getting brewed. Yeah, And I thought, you know, there's an opportunity there maybe that uh, we could capitalize on. You know, I did the pros and cons and you know, my folks had this business that I was doing a poor job of running. So I thought we could get some square footage out of them. Uh-huh. And so having a building a space is really important. And like I was saying, my wife was at work. Uh, Becca was working at North Memorial and, uh, you know, she, uh, she was paying She's the paying the bills. Yeah, right. And she also, you know, was paying the health care. Uh-huh. And, you know, the idea of thinking that, uh, you know, that would kind of, you know, if you got to start a business and, you know hit a salary number right off the bat. I figured it would be kind of tough, but I thought I might have a little wiggle room, mm-hmm. you know, if uh, I could convince her. So she was the first person uh, I had to talk into this whole plan. And
0: did she go for it right away?
1: Uh, you know, yeah, I, w- I, I had a couple more beers by the time <laughs> she got home from work and I gave her one. I said, I got a great idea. <laughs> and uh, she said, you know, let's let's do it. Let's do it until we find out, you know, the answer is no from someone because I didn't know the laws or what was going on or or maybe we don't have enough money, you know, that might be an issue too. We, who knows? Mm-hmm. And, uh, so yeah, Becca is, uh, is the person behind the brewery that has made it run all of these years. No That's question amazing. about it.
0: Yeah. You need people like that on your and, side. And this
1: is on the tour when we all raise a glass and toast right. to Becca and all those other people that help us do what, what, uh, chase our dreams.
0: Absolutely.
1: I told my mom first, uh, actually when she was laid up in the hospital, she was getting <sighs> a cast cut off. She broke her ankle. and I knew if, I told her then she couldn't walk away, which was kind of <laughs> one of her things, nor could—and she was all hopped up on pain med, so I thought that was the perfect time to tell her. Sure. And she was all for it. You know, she, uh, uh, she said she—you know, she came here from Germany to, to see New York, Chicago, and San Francisco, and it took her about 30 years to get to San Francisco because my, my dad way later in Chicago and Minneapolis uh, for, for a long time. And, you know, while the business was certainly my dad's passion, you know, I don't, my mom worked there too. She did the books for years. I don't think she quite had the passion about industrial abrasives as mm-hmm. my dad did. So I think she could see that like, this was something new and different mm-hmm. and something I wanted to do. So she was all for it. And your dad? I did tell my dad, I had, uh, I had, uh, um, build up a little, uh, uh, a little plan to talk to my dad because I knew that was going to be a little bit tougher. And, you know, it also kind of meant that their business was You know, it was small enough, like no one else was going to come and run it. Hmm. So I did tell him this plan because it kind of meant, like I said, I was turning, turning my back on, on their business and not sure what he was going to say. And, you know, he, I, I I told him the plan and then he, he put his hand out to shake mine and said, well, welcome to the club of being an entrepreneur. Hmm. And that was, uh, you know, I always ran his business, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's different when it's, when it's your own, your yeah. own, your own thing. So
0: what was the breakthrough? Do you remember the first moment when we were like, wow, this might really work? You know, it was, a,
1: I, there were probably a couple moments. I remember I was at Old Chicago in Uptown and mm. doing an event and that used to be what I did. Like I'd go bring a freaking or a pin of, of beer to a bar and hand it out and talk about the brewery. And, you know, Becca would be with me and we'd walk around and a lot of people are like, what, you know, who are you? What are you, <laughs> what are you talking about? And uh, there's a young lady at Old Chicago, and she was, just, she. just I, I didn't know who she was. She's a, a beer fan. And she said, you know, whenever I go to a bar, I ask them why, don't, why they don't have Surly. She goes, they're, they're a local brewery. We should be supporting local local breweries. And she goes, if I'm at a bar that has Bender on and they've got a Newcastle, she's like, I'll buy someone a Bender and give it to them and say, like, you should drink this. This is a local brewery. They're great. And I remember, like, oh, my God, this is someone I don't know. Mm-hmm that's out there, like, advocating for the brand just because they want to see local beer do well. I mean, yeah. I'm like, wow. And that she wasn't is... related to no, you. No, it was just she... some, you know, I'm like, oh, my God, like, that's, this is amazing. And, and it, it kind of started this momentum of, you know, if you want the beer, ask your bar for it. And, you know, we just started getting a few more calls and a few more calls and started canning our beer then. So then we got into liquor stores, which... Then we couldn't make enough because, you know, we were pretty tiny. And, you know, probably a year later then it was, you know, we started our waiting list. At the end of the day, we probably had a 400-store waiting list of places that wanted beer. And I had to stop answering the phone.
0: (laughs) Wow. And that's why we
1: brought uh, uh, Heather Heather on board because I'm like, I can't take it anymore. Yeah. Uh, you know, cuz yeah, people were mad and I'm like, I'm furious. Like, we're Oh, that's well done. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, like they, you know, they're like, "Why can't I get the beer?" I'm like, "Well, I can't make enough. Like, you know, we keep adding more tanks and doing everything we can." And so it took about a, you know, maybe it was a year, um, mm-hmm. but we did uh get rolling.
0: It was really the 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 stores that that propelled it more than the bars, would you say? I mean, it was when you were No, can-
1: I, I just think that there's so many more outlets at, at liquor stores where mm-hmm. you know they'll take you know it's it's you know those tap handles at bars are so valuable mm-hmm. you know I would say it's kind of like they're one arm bandit at a casino like that's where they make their money is draft beer so you know for them to put someone on like a lot of them didn't want to switch mm. because a lot of them didn't want to work with a the distributor they didn't know. we were self distributing our beer it was just me and, you know, they didn't want to deal with someone else. That's just wasn't how they did business. It's different now. There's a lot of different people out selling their own beer now. So it was just harder to kind of just to kind of break in and get a draft handle sometimes. So it all kind of was growing. And you probably the, the moment that was the most impactful was when we, um, let me think, um, I think it was the next summer. It must have been June it was my anniversary. It was June of uh, 2020. Uh, 2005?
0: 2007. Seven.
1: Okay. And I was at the cabin with, my, with the boys, all three. And uh, Becca called me and she's like, hey, happy anniversary. My brother called me to wish me a happy anniversary. I'm like, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, three <laughs> nice. kids under mm-hmm. three, you know, life was pretty crazy in the brewery. And, and uh, so she was reading this online beer site called Beer Advocate, which was a big, mm-hmm. big influence in the market and helped us make who we make us who we are, because, you know, the traditional marketing methodologies of selling beer and such wasn't necessary. It was all on the Internet.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, we got a, a good following from Twin Cities beer fans talking about us. On this particular day, there was a post on Best Brewery in America, and she was she was on her on, on her computer looking at it. and we were kind of reading it together, and there was so they kind of played a game on the blog of like, well, who do you think it is? And, you know, they're listing all the breweries. And I'm like, yeah, I know that brewery. I know it's, no, it's not Stone. It's not Dogfish. It's not, you know, all of these breweries. And they kind of keep narrowing it down. And they're like, it's in the Midwest. They're like, well, is it Three Floyds? No, it's not Bells. And, and someone finally says, is it Surly? And they say, yeah.
0: Wow. And so
1: I'm, Beck and I are reading this in real time, kind of scrolling through it. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, they just named us the best brewery in America. We have seven employees.
0: When we get back, Omar goes to the state capital and changes an entire industry. Today's episode is made possible with support from Bremer Bank. When you're looking for business advice, everyone's got an opinion, an angle, a surefire five-step plan. But if you want to know whether any of it actually makes sense for your business, who do you turn to? Work with a banker who understands your business goals and how a strong banking relationship will help you achieve them. Work with Bremer Bank because understanding is everything. Put Bremer to work for you today at Bremer.com. There are lessons to be learned about the angle Omar took to get the Surly Bill passed in record time and how he continues
1: to adapt to changing market conditions. Take a listen. For years when I'd be doing the tours every Friday, people would be like, Hey, when are you gonna when are you gonna grow? When are you gonna you know, when are you gonna build a new place? And mm-hmm. I would say, like, look. You were still in Brooklyn yeah, Center. Yeah, Brooklyn Center. I'd say, Well, look around. Like there's ten thousand square feet of empty space in here. Like there's no we can keep adding more tanks. And that's, you know, in the beer business, it's it's you always have some bottleneck in it maybe it's canning, maybe it's your your fermentation space, it's something. So we had more space to grow by just adding tanks and when it got to 2010, it kind of seemed at that point that we were literally hitting, hitting the ceiling because breweries could only grow as much as they can ferment, and we couldn't ferment any more beer in the building. And uh, I'd gone to, to Prague with uh, uh, Jim Mott, who's our driver at the time, going to play Ultimate, the World Championship, and uh, I, I came back. We didn't win, which was a bummer. Oh, I'm and sorry. I blew my knee out. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> but Jim stayed and he went with another friend of mine, Russ, and they went to the Stiegel Brewery in, uh, I think it's Salzburg. So when Jim came back, we're sitting in the office and he has this brochure. He's like, Omar, check out this brewery I was at. He's like, it was amazing. There was a massive beer garden and, you know, restaurant inside and event center and. Old creepy European beer museum that had like stuffed, <laughs> yeah, stuffed, uh, uh, uh you know, straw people in there of what it was brewing like hundreds of years ago. And uh, he's like, Man, we should do that here. And I'm like, Well, sure. If we could sell someone a glass of beer, then we could do that, but we can't sell beer at a brewery in Minnesota. So right. we can't do that.
0: So crazy to yeah, think about.
1: Well, you know, I mean, states' rights, there's 50 ways to interpret how to. Do alcohol. You know, mm-hmm. every state has its own unique peculiarities and, and strange customs that have been around for a long time. And Minnesota certainly has its share. I mean, we all know the blue laws can't couldn't buy beer on Sundays for sure. the long, longest time, you know, grocery stores, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, in some, most states you could sell beer at the, at the brewery. Um, we, we couldn't. And, uh, you know, we'd already – we got to sell growlers. That law changed the year we opened. So that wasn't part of the business plan when we opened. And that changed.
0: What made you think that you were the one who could
1: change this law? You know, I think Jim told me, you know, that idea in July because it was after the 4th of July. And I remember I was thinking like, man, this would be great. It'd be great if we could bring this to Minnesota because I've seen it in other states. I've Mm -hmm. seen some of these huge brewery places uh, that I I think are transformational for a city's beer scene. Mm -hmm. And we can't do that because you can't build a brewery that big if you, can't uh have a tasting number. I didn't I didn't want to just build a bigger brewery to be bigger. Mm-hmm. I thought we needed this this kind of beer hall component to make it work and literally it was after the election in uh I guess that'd be November of that year
0: of of tw- 2010. 10? Okay.
1: I think the Republicans took the House and the Senate. I think that year it was the first time in like 30 40 years if I recall. And I remember looking at the newspaper, the Star Trib, that day and on the cover it said I think the Republican Senate majority or House majority of the time said, you know, we heard heard you loud and clear. We've got a mandate to create jobs. Mm-hmm. So this was a jobs bill. That was the story. That's why this change needed to take place was because we we're going to be able to create, you know, 100 and, you know, plus 200 construction jobs. And you know, we would hire 200 or 300 people in the city. Mm-hmm. And that was really kind of the, the angle, right, of, of why it was worth changing this law. Because you know, there are a lot of people that that don't like to see laws like that changed. And I get it because if you're in the business, you don't want to see it changed. Mm -hmm. And that, I get it. So you got to give legislators a compelling reason as to the why. And when we took that story to the legislature, some of the opposition, I think was quoted in the paper as saying, you know, that's all fine and good, but you should go do it somewhere where it's already legal. So, you know, when a legislature reads that and they're carrying water for someone and, and, you know, they're supposed to be at the Capitol to help create jobs and spur the economy. And someone says, just go do it in Hudson, Wisconsin, where it's legal. That's kind of a hard it's, it's a hard mm-hmm. stance to defend, you know. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so, yeah, that was re- that was really the whole message of like, we could do this in Hudson, but I'm a Vikings fan, not a Packers fan. So why don't I do it here? <laughs> right. Right. And, you know, I, I did think it would change the market. It has even more so than anyone would have guessed, myself included. I, mean, I was going to say, did it's you? It's now, you know, breweries are part of every small town yeah. in the state. You know, there are community gathering spots all over the place. I mean, there's hundreds of them. I mean, I think there's, you know, I used to be president of the Brewer's Guild, and there were probably, oh, 15, 20 breweries at that time. And, you know, now there's over 200. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know. I mean, will... they
0: call it the Surly Bill for a reason.
1: And there was a lot of momentum. I mean, you know, Surly had... Um, had you know we were in the paper all the time, just for doing anything you mm-hmm. know it was it was a unique time in the craft beer scene and and the place we we played in it and you know going back to my dad and that story of him struggling at their business for years, you know um kind of seeing that how we took off and the success we had it seemed like it would it was somewhat incumbent upon me to take that success and try and do more things with it and that hmm. was that that was the whole idea because you know i'd been around long enough to know like that's not most businesses don't go grow like that it's not a normal yes you had Um, something special you know it was it was trying to do something to you know bring minnesota something that it didn't have and and i think um yeah i mean it certainly seems like that mission accomplished
0: (laughs) (laughs) i would say so i'm curious in in that time while you were working on that and you were you know giving interviews and you were you know uh, appearing um, at the Capitol, it must have been challenging to also just make sure that the business kept going. I mean, you had a business to run in yeah. real time, too. Obviously, you were planning for the future of the right. business. But was it tricky at that time?
1: Boy, honestly, Ali, it's hard for me to even remember the business side of things at that time since I was so focused on the capital. I mean, yeah. the crazy thing with the capital piece is, you know, I talked to some lobbyists to kind of get their opinion because I knew I'd have to have someone that, you know, knows the legislators, that knows how these things get done. And uh, you know, a number of folks are like, "Well, this is going to take a couple years, and it's going to take a while." I'm like, "Oh, I don't know if I'm I'm up for that." And I uh, talked to, to to Judy Cook, who we worked with, and she's like, "No, we can get this done in a year." She's like, "I I see a story here that that is that resonates very much so." So, you know, the idea, like I said, came around in November, and it got signed into law in it. June. Yeah, it's um, pretty amazing. It was pretty amazing, and you know, Senators like Linda Scheid, who'd who'd actually passed away before the the bill got signed, mm. um, who was a DFLer from where the brewery is at you know she was incredibly impactful in getting that bill passed it, it you kind of realize when you're in the the sausage making in the politics of like just how boy it's just a different world at yeah. the capitol and yeah. uh, I was really glad I was only there for a few months <laughs> it's not <laughs> it's not kind of my jam um, don't need to go back huh? no so luckily yeah the bill um yeah, it, it kind of, it, it was a roller coaster. It is it certainly was not a slam dunk. There were lots of moments. It felt like there was no chance, but it got done because people called their legislators that at that, yeah. the end of the day was the difference is they, they emailed, they called their legislators and wanted to see it get done. Right. And the surly nation. Yeah. I mean, literally that that's why it changed mm-hmm. because people reached out to their legislators and I'd asked Judy, you know, how many calls emails do you think it, takes for a legislator to notice something. She goes, "Oh, I don't know, six or seven." Mm-hmm. I'm like, what? That's it? She's like, "Well, this is a business thing, like they don't like that's just not a topic that gets that shows up much." I'm like, "I can get you more than six or seven emails." <laughs> right. And that was literally it was, you know, it was all of those beer fans.
0: Hundreds, thousands. thousands.
1: Yeah, that literally, you know, it, that that's why the bill got passed. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So so once that happened and you're free to go, um, yeah. it took how long? Walk us through the, the timeline. It was 20, when right.
1: The bill got passed in 2011 and it took us, a, a, you know, we opened the new beer hall in December of 2014. Mm-hmm. So it took three, three and a half years. So it took a long time. I mean, I remember there were some stories like, what's, what's the problem? Why is it taking Surly so long? But, um, you know, we wanted to find a spot that was the right spot and it took, a lot of time and I didn't, you know, had never gone through the process. So we got some help from some uh, um owners reps Tegra helped us out to try and like vet all the spots out. I think we had 80 different spots we looked mm. at in the metro. And uh, but you know I wanted to be in the city and close to public transit, close to close to biking.
0: Again, you were a trailblazer. You look at what has gone on around Surly. It's incredible how that neighborhood has come to life.
1: Yeah, you know, that was um yeah, if, if folks remember, that area was, was probably one of the largest vacant areas in the city, Yeah, right? And that was really sort of uh, what Tegra had, 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 had said. They are like, Omar, if we can make this work, it's a diamond in the rough. And, you know, that property is contaminated. Uh, so it's a brownfield site, which made it even more challenging. And, yeah, it was a tough, it was a tough spot to sort of choose to start. But I really saw, you know, we could see the potential. Like mm-hmm. we knew light rail was coming. Like mm-hmm. we knew that was going to be, I thought, going to be big. And right on the, you know, the new the green, that U of M um, yeah. greenway was, was newer at that time. So it just kind of felt like, like this, this was a, a spot that really probably was a bit underdeveloped and was going to have the potential. And, you know, you just, like, there's one thing that you can't make more of is, space right and it was like in the city and it just felt like you know actually one of our one of the parking lots in st paul so it's like we're in st paul in minneapolis we're right in the middle and right it's a great spot so it was it was tough to build because it was a brownfield site and had some challenges but um you know it worked out we opened in december of 2014 and uh how did that feel do you remember do you remember opening day oh god it was great I remember looking outside, and there weren't many people in the beginning. I'm like, oh, my God, no one's going to show up, right? It's like having a party at 7 o'clock. Yeah. Like, There's no one here. Mm-hmm. They ended up showing up. <laughs> <laughs> they ended up showing up. And the great thing is, you know, my dad passed away in 2015, actually, in January. Mm. And he was able to see the place get opened, and that was pretty special because, uh, you know, he's an immigrant. Of course. And, and to see sort of that success, uh, I think, was a pretty yeah, pretty special moment for him and, and um, you know, just felt like we'd we'd all come a long way
0: yeah absolutely i am I, remind me did you raise money to to get it built did you i mean were you able to do that building on the business or or did you have to go out and raise money
1: yeah well, it's a lot of loans yeah but <laughs> it was loans at, it wasn't in u s bank yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's how uh the whole thing got got done and there are lots of ups and downs with that too you mm-hmm. know a process I'd never been through because we'd you know been self-funded the whole time up to then and uh yeah, a whole nother world, and and worked with some some folks over there at U.S. Bank, and they were great. You know, they believed, and and um, you know, we got the thing done. So yeah. it was it was some pretty stressful stressful moments along the way, though. Like when you're digging in a brownfield site and waiting to make sure they don't find any more barrels or any underground tanks. You know, literally, it was just every day. Like oh, if God. they do, then then the bank's gonna you know might not want to have any part to do with it. So yeah. nerve Definitely times. some nerve-wracking times.
0: So once it got open, I mean, immediate success, everybody's showing up.
1: Yeah, we were busy. Yeah, We were busy. Yeah. I mean, we'd lower the price of our beer from 550 to five because there wasn't enough time to make change oh my God. <laughs> for the bartenders, you know, wow. so it was it was definitely trying to figure out how to how to move through all the people. And, you know, it was a spot. That's kind of how hospitality works. Right. There's a Every kind of every restaurant or bar sort of has its time and, you know, when it's hot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had we had people showing up, um, some pretty well-dressed uh, folks that I'm like, I don't think I've seen them at the brewery in Brooklyn Center. We don't have folks like that come here. So, yeah, you know, the food, we, re- we really tried to push the envelope on the food like we did with the architecture. I think like we do with all things that certainly try to do it the best we can. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I think a lot of people were blown away at the quality of the food. Um, you know, we did end up with our, our head chef, Jorge Guzman, uh, and got nominated for a beard yeah. award for the food program at the brewery. And, you know, it was pretty, it was, it was pretty heady times. It was pretty exciting.
0: How long would you say it remained heady times? Straight into the pandemic? Or were there, were there any bumps and and tough spots?
1: Yeah, there were some tough spots. Um, you know, we had the brewer's table, which was up the upstairs restaurant, which is now where Pete, the pizza place is. And, uh, you know, we... Uh, when we went to the Beards, and, and Jorge didn't win, and when we came back, you know, it, it still wasn't that busy, and, um, you know, we tried to do something with food and beer that really not many places in the U.S. had done. You know, brewers always talk about how beer pairs better with food than wine, so places should do beer dinners. I'm like, well, if we're saying that, we should probably do it ourselves. So, so we did. It's tough to put a fine dining restaurant on top of a rowdy beer hall, mm. and uh, it seemed like we probably needed to, to make some changes. and. You know that was sort of the start of some of the changes we made, and it was it was tough. You know we had people leave that had been with the brewery for a long time, and yeah, th- there was definitely some challenges along the way.
0: Why don't more beer halls, even today, breweries
1: do food?
0: I'm always surprised.
1: Uh, it's hard. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's it's really hard. hard. It's yeah. just hard to be in I, that business it is, on top it's a, of it's brewing. a hard business. Yeah, yeah. And I think you know it's gotten nothing but harder. You know, hospitality these last few years, so. Yeah, I I think it's a it's a big expense and a big headache that a lot of people don't mm-hmm. want to take on. it's yep. a whole another aspect of the business that is it's kind of its own animal, you know. Yeah. I mean, for a while we kind of managed everything as one and it's like, yeah, like you can't it's different, you know, mm-hmm. there are different businesses, different schedules, different um different people, different it's it's different culture in, you know, in the brewery and versus like a like a bar. So, yeah. it's it can it, it it just takes a lot to add on to to do that hospitality, that restaurant part. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. But,
0: but speaking of hospitality, you created a whole, uh, event space outside yeah. the field, the festivals, right. the, the music, live music. Did you, yeah. did you think about that from the beginning?
1: You know, we knew we were going to do music there. Right. Um, that was just part of the idea, but you no, know, it was so, you know, the, our event center Scheid Hall after named after Linda Scheid. And, and I knew we would, you know, and that took us a while to get an event center going. And, was just standing up there one day, looking out of the backyard. I'm like, "Man, we should have some music back here." Like, look how big it is. Mm-hmm. And that was really that kind of just popped up out of, out of. We had the space, you know. We have it eight, was your space. You already, yeah, we have eight acres your... mm-hmm. back there, which is why it took us so long to find a space. It's that that big. There's not a lot of them mm-hmm. in the in the city proper. So, yeah, it seemed like, hey, we can we can we can have some fun here with some music. And and that's when we started that part of that part of the festival field side of Surly. So I think we've got five, five shows this, this summer, and we had 11 last year. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just something else <laughs> something else to take on. Did you bring on <laughs> different
0: staff to, to manage that? Mm,
1: at the time, no. You know, we've got, I mean, the staff at Surly's has always been amazing people that will kind of take on anything. That's sort of the Surly ethos of taking on whatever's in front of you and, and figuring it out. And yeah, it was the people we had made it work. So is
0: it actually, um, is it more about marketing and exposure and fun or is that actually profitable? Is that a moneymaker for you?
1: Well, you hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if the place sells out and, and it's a nice weather day. Yeah. 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 You know, some shows, you know, you can usually tell just by how many people there are. If there's not a lot of people, then it's not a good show. Mm -hmm. And, um, I guess that's kind of how every business is set up, you know, yeah. like you need to fill it up and and uh, um, hope for good weather. So. Right. So, yeah, that's the idea is that it should hopefully still be profitable because it's a lot of work. I mean, it takes weeks, weeks of work and, and lots of additional staff to run the event. So yeah. A lot of it just depends on the show of, mm-hmm. of what the show is. You know, Ween was like crazy for us. We had people camping out. The day of. And and some shows, yeah, they're just, you know, it's raining and, and you don't sell that many tickets and it doesn't quite work out. But that's right. the nature of doing outdoor stuff, right? Of course, of course. Yeah.
0: So along comes twenty twenty, COVID nineteen. Yeah. You have to shut down, along with pretty much everything else. What were you thinking? I know you were out talking about how hard it is. I know you had to furlough hundreds of employees. How were you feeling in those days as the owner and founder of all of this?
1: Yeah, I think that was a pretty tough time for, uh, many, I mean, everyone, right. Of just trying to understand what was going on. And, you know, we all thought we'd be shutting down for a week maybe, Mm -hmm. and then maybe two weeks. And, you know, it kind of became clear that it was longer and longer and longer. And, um, you know, it was tough because our, uh, you know, kind of the way the business cycle works is, you know, we make, you know, you make money when the sun shines in the beer business in Minnesota, like the summer is where it's at kind of hang on in the winter and you get to summer and they're closing down in, in March. Right. It was, I, I think us just like everyone else, just trying to figure out what in the world was going on and how to support our employees. And I mean, the brewery kept running, which, you know, we didn't know if that, what was going to go on with that, but, um, The brewery kept running. It was considered an essential business, keeping people in beer. (laughs) So that kept going, you Mm -hmm. know, with its own challenges of, you know, people not wanting to get COVID going to work. But, you know, that's one third of our business, uh, you know, was is canned beer sales at liquor stores. The other two thirds are the beer hall and draft sales at bars and restaurants. And those kind of went away. So it was a hard time to figure out uh, what to do. So we reopened in June. I think it was, boy, when did things reopen?
0: It's well, they think. opened, they closed they again. They opened and
1: then, you know, it became, I think that's when there was a 200 person maximum in a facility and, mm-hmm. you know, it was so much of reading, you know, what is allowed, what's not allowed. We got to the fall, I think it was, uh, I think after August had happened and we realized we didn't make any money. I'm like, oh my God, we're going to get destroyed over the winter. So that's, you know, when we, we uh, announced we're going to shut down, shut down and, um, you know, then we reopened in June of 2020. 21 Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and thought all right here we go it's all back right the roaring 20s came after the spanish flu like it's gonna go nuts and it was okay and then omicron happened yeah and then everything basically completely shut down again and so you know lots of starts and stops and trying to figure out you know how to what was gonna happen how we're gonna move forward in all that time so it was it was pretty tough yeah
0: was there any anything that you've learned as a as a? I mean, you have. I mean, you got to be stressed out as a business owner, and also you're a leader of all these people, and and the culture it all stems from you. So how you know how, how did you navigate that with your whole team?
1: <laughs> Man, I mean, it was a lot of myself and the team talking, and just just felt like every day trying to figure out what to do. Yeah, you know, things kept changing as, as, uh, the laws changed as the, as the coronavirus changed and what we thought was going to happen. It was, it was just trying to literally get by and, you know, luckily we, we had gotten some help with uh, PPP loans and, you know, without it, we wouldn't have made it. So there there was a lot of, we don't know what's going to happen. You Mm -hmm. know, there's a lot of, I don't know if we're going to make it if we can't reopen like it was. Yeah. But, you know, we weren't alone with that, right? I mean, you could just look around and see it going on everywhere of, like, the government's going to help, right? Like, we, mm-hmm. we, we're not going to make it. Yeah, it was it was tough working with the bank, trying to figure out what to do because they didn't, you know, they were kind of stuck in a spot. And, yeah, with employees, it was hard to communicate with. And, you know, um, probably if anything we've learned, you know, we'll, well, I'm sure we'll get to it. But, you know, we've hired a new COO last year and, you know, probably – Communication to the whole team wasn't always been my strength. So, probably finding a better way to have done that over that time would have been <laughs> probably better. You know, at one point, I think people are like, You're being too negative. And I'm like, <sighs> Okay. <Yeah. laughs> All right. We won't talk about that. Then we'll not talk about anything bad. <laughs> so, yeah. it was uh, tricky yeah, to be I'm honest. Just, I don't really. Be, uh, yeah. There's uh, not a lot of great memories from that. That's sure. for sure.
0: <laughs> so when did things really turn around? When did you know you were back?
1: Oh boy, when did I know we're back? That's kind of tough. Well, that's kind of a tough one. Probably some of the festival field shows last year just felt like okay, 2022. Here we go. Like mm-hmm. it feels like people are back out, and that that definitely, you know, you could just you could just tell like you know just the world was opening back up again, you know, yeah. and and that's really when you could see it happening. So, I mean, God, I, <laughs> it just reminds me of, yeah, when the pandemic happened, like we dumped beer down the drain, like we had to bring kegs back from the trade and mm. dump it down the drain or try to repurpose it. It was just crazy. So, you know, being done with that part and just worried about making beer, um, yeah. you know, was a big, was a big plus. And, you know, when we opened the beer hall, it was this last summer when it just felt like things were starting to get back to normal. Sure, I mean, they're not, you know, really? in the business, it's just not, things are changed and. Um, you know, we're we're having a change with it. It's I think the Twin Cities probably have taken it harder in the hospitality trade than probably just about anywhere in the country. So Why? Why is that? Well, um you know, you can just speculate, I guess, from you know, we're in a studio in White Bear Lake and not downtown. Mm-hmm. So you're probably not gonna go get a drink at Zelo tonight. Because I might, but you yes. might, but you're gonna yeah. have to go downtown to do that's it. Right. Like that's not so that's not what most people do because they're not going to work, mm-hmm. so they don't go out.
0: But that's impacted you, where well, you that's, guys But are? that's
1: where we sell our beer. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's impacted the the beer hall for sure. Mm-hmm. But it's also like there's – I mean, like Uptown's kind of – The bars. Oh, yeah. Uptown's kind of – Yeah. I, I lived in Uptown for, know. for three it's years shocking. right by the lake. And I'm yep. like – you know, those are some of our top accounts like they're gone. Hmm. Stella's is gone. Williams is gone. You know, they're, they're not there. There's nothing there. And it and isn't just
0: that it's shifted that you're seeing other places,
1: Yeah, you know, the suburban places are definitely been doing better. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the city is I mean, you read the paper. It's been it's been tough for those that are in the business of yeah. hospitality that need people to be there. Yeah, there are not as many people there. How, you know? many,
0: how dependent is the company at this point on
1: this market versus the rest of the country? Well, this is our home. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, this, this, is, this is our market. and you know, We sell beer in other spots, but as time has gone on, you know, back when we started, it was a big deal when we went to Chicago. You know, now there's 300 breweries in Chicago. We're just another beer, hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, when you sell beer in Iowa— you know who drinks Iowa, iowegian beer iowans do so mm. they're super proud of their local breweries and that's who they want to support huh. you know so yeah our home market is that's so is interesting where we need to sell our beer
0: but i think of you at this point as a as a national player people know surly from coast to coast don't they
1: oh do you
0: want them to do you do you see that as the the growth potential no
1: that's over in the beer business like there's Hmm. There's really not much expansion, it's more contraction than anything I mean it's a um yeah i mean the the beer business craft beer is pretty pessimistic right now it's it's really too saturated it's too saturated, and people's drinking habits have changed so at the last craft brewers conference I went to, you know years ago when I first started going, it was all about independence, all about how we brew our beer um you know we don't wanna have anything to do with the big guys, we don't brew that kind of stuff, and very focused on you know, the people that are in the people that are officially part of the craft beers brewers association are craft like the new wave of craft brewers. And at this last craft brewers conference, they're like, do whatever you have to do to survive. Hmm. Make seltzers, make RTDs, just yeah. just get just make it. And, yeah, it's it's people are drinking less beer than they used to. And there was an interesting curve that a couple of charts they showed. And one was peak beer, which was probably mid 2010s or 15, something like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and. um and you see it drop off around that time. And then they superimposed a chart of, they called it alternative adult beverages. So kombuchas and RTDs and seltzers and all of those other things, like this hop water. That I was you know, insane. Like, like, this is a hoppy, sparkling water. Like, a kid's not going to drink this. It's mm-hmm. just, like, it's not sweet, but it tastes, it kind of fills that, that void of, of wanting something, mm-hmm. an adult beverage.
0: You also walked in here with some THC. And beverages. some THC,
1: yeah. And so people are, you know, that didn't exist couple you know five years ago right well you put those on top of each other and yet, yeah people are drinking less beer they're Mm -hmm. drinking less craft beer they're drinking less macro beer they're you know they're drinking other things and like that is absolutely affected us we sell less beer than we used to
0: so how much emphasis are you putting on these alternative drinks and how
1: i think a lot you know i was always stubborn about not brewing seltzers and not doing all of those other things um you know, for better or worse, I always say that things that make you make you strong or make you great can also make you be your downfall. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I was always been stubborn about not doing some of those things, and you know, that's the reality. of That's what consumers are looking for. So, yeah, I mean, we are, you know are spending a lot of time making THC beverages now, which is brand new and and certainly untested waters for anywhere yeah. in the United States. Minnesota's doing it way different, and. Yeah, lots of other those other products, those other non beer beverages and, and contract brewing. We never did it, never looked at it mm. before. But yeah, we are we are working, we're making some beers for some other breweries in town. And that's that's the business, right? At the end of the day, that wasn't my vision, but at the end of the day it's it's filling up the tanks, keeping people employed and keeping things moving. And if that's where we're at, that's where we're at.
0: Yeah. Have you come to like any of those seltzers and THC beverages?
1: You know, I don't honestly still drink a ton of them. Um, it's, I'm you still think it's a beer a fad? guy. Well, I thought it was a fad about five or six years ago. <laughs> yeah. And you know, one of my sales guys was like, Hey, Omar, I was at a bar and people were drinking this white cloth thing. And I'm like, what? I'm like, you know, like, well, that's that's nonsense. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, it, it I mean, it's a product that's there, mm-hmm. and that's what you know. If that's what people are into drinking, then you know, mm-hmm. all right, that's. I mean, kind of all beverages. They kind of come and go. Like craft beer, it, is it going to get back to the volume it was? I don't know. So, does that mean it was a fad? Well, I, I hope not. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, flavors, tastes come and go, and they change. And you know, we just. Uh, kind of that, that's part of what we're doing now is focusing on making some of those other products that yeah. we never used to.
0: So do you feel optimistic about the future? Are you, are you still having fun or is it just all, you know, practical?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's hard. There's no question, you know, like doing, you know, when you can't make enough beer, we always just say that's a problem, but it's a good problem, uh-huh. right? When your challenge is is trying to meet capacity and, and deal with that, it's it's it has its own stresses, sure, <laughs> for sure. So, you know, I mean, this is a different one. I mean, the I don't know, maybe that's just the way I am. Like, it's always been stressful mm-hmm. <laughs> for me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of you know now that we're doing things that we haven't done in the past. Like, there's crazy amount of opportunities. I think we're pretty fortunate because. You know, some of the brewer, or some of the people we' making stuff for they're like, "Wow, you this is the best product that anyone's made for us." and they've worked with a couple other places in town, and it's like, yeah, we are really good at, at making beer, making whatever we put out of our place. I mean we've got two facilities, a lab, some unbelievably talented brewing staff, packaging team that make world- class products. so now that we're sort of marketing that um, service to other businesses i mean there's kind of a lot it, it, it's it's a new part of the business that's sort of fun and you know i'm working with will crosby who's our head of production and you know putting our heads together on like all right should we get like this piece of equipment will allow us mm. to do this like should we get a pasteurizer because you need that for na beer or you know maybe if you're going to be doing juice stuff or sodas like you know there's all of these other things to try and figure out and that's the fun part i mean yeah the i mean I think any entrepreneur kind of enjoys the the problem solving piece of it, and that's that's part part of the fun stuff for sure. Now,
0: so that's good. So that that is still fun. Yeah, to you. yeah. Where do you? So is that where you spend most of your time today? Is it is it more on kind of innovation and? You know,
1: uh, like I said, uh, we hired a, a COO a year ago, Tom, um, mm-hmm. who's been great and really helped us. Uh, you know, I've the only company I ever worked at was my folks, and it was a small place, and you know a lot of those. Normal company uh, uh, processes, we've, you know, not really, I've never really been good at doing them and managing and giving feedback. How many employees feedback. do you have? Oh, uh, probably close to 300. Mm-hmm. In the summer, we, we really scale up with the beer, with the beer garden. Um, so a lot of those pieces that I've just never been great at of giving feedback and helping our managers be better isn't been my long suit. So with Tom there, I'm actually going back out into the trade a lot because that's how I built the business was going out and delivering beer. And just going out and seeing accounts and, you know, usually it's just thanks. You Hmm. know, there's been some accounts I've gone to see and they have an OG tap handle, the ones that I made, you know, they're cast out of aluminum. And, you know, so that means they've been pouring our beer for probably 14 years at least. And some of these I haven't been to. I mean, they're in the metro and I've never been there, Mm -hmm. which is kind of embarrassing. They're our customer. And, you know, it's going up and going out and saying, you know, thanks for supporting the brand all of these years. And... Because the beer business is like a lot of businesses. It's a people business, you know, and it's just been I've been so wrapped up in the brewery trying to, you know, get the law changed, get the, you know, raise money to get the brewery going. All of the pieces, the managing of it that, you know, I haven't been out in the trade a lot. Sure. Yeah. So there's a lot of that. And just sort of working on the new plans on, you know working on new equipment stuff, trying to figure out what, you know, what's a good fit for us moving forward and allow us to kind of keep growing in this new space that we're exploring. So those are probably the spots that I'm spending my time working on the most.
0: What do you know about entrepreneurship after all these years? What what advice do you give, you know, people who come to you aspiring to be like you?
1: You know, probably the, the piece, you know, I've certainly back in the day, I got a lot of questions about opening a brewery and, and, and a lot of people questions about that. And, you know, there's usually two pieces I would, I would give and, and I've been told were helpful. And one of them was, well, just go and do it. You know, you can't wait for the perfect time. That's, it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. I remember I talked to, talk to a, a guy that started a cidery out in Vermont and, and he heard me say that and he's like, yep, I just went out and started and, and thanks for the advice. Cause you know, sometimes like no one's going to it's your business no one's going to tell you to do it it's it's your your neck on the line so you got to make it work and i think that's the other piece is like you know you can't expect the professionals that um maybe you bring on the lawyers and accountants and all the people you need it's still your business and no one's going to care about it as much as you do so certainly don't ever you know put all your faith in someone else's interpretation of it cuz a lot of times you've got to argue with people about your point of view and i've argued with the state about stuff where they didn't agree that we could self distribute and Yeah, we ended up being able to do it, but it wasn't easy, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, so you got to, you know, that and you've got to know your business. And I think most people that want to go into business have a pretty good idea about what they're doing. But yeah, you've got to, you've got to find a way to, I mean, for at least for me, it was always, we we always had a kind of a vision of where we were going to go and how to get there. I certainly seems with bigger companies, I'm always kind of curious as to what the plan is, because it seems to be just keep growing until someone buys you. But that's Mm -hmm. a whole nother world, I guess.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Do you feel I mean, you're you're kind of the, the the OG and there's a whole generation of kids who are now old enough to go drink at Surly who yeah. see you as kind of, you know, the original. How does that feel?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I think we get more of that in the right in the other breweries around the state is kind of probably who I, I interact with more about that. And um it's interesting because, you know, certainly when we started 17 years ago, we were, we were the ones sort of on the front end and cutting edge and doing new things. And there are breweries out there now that are sort of doing, pushing the envelope and doing different things and more things. And, you know, it's amazing. You kind of realize when you've been doing it for a while, like it, things just keep moving, yeah. you know, they don't stop. Yeah. And I think that's uh, always an important piece to realize, like, man, it does not slow down.
0: Yeah. Well, you're not slowing down either. So,
1: <laughs> are you no. ready for
0: the boys to take over the business? Do well, you we'll want see. them to? You know,
1: my eldest uh, doesn't like carbonated beverages of any sort <laughs> and doesn't really seem to be too too into it. So, um you know my twins that are uh same same age as your son, yeah. as Oscar um uh, Yeah. I think they they uh they kind of grew up with the brewery and kind of realized like, wait a second, this is a family business. Like, wait, we're in the family. Like, really? yeah, well, <laughs> always an important piece to realize like man it does not slow down
0: yeah well you're not slowing down either so,
1: are you no. ready for
0: the boys to take over the business do well, you we'll want to see them say- you know
1: my eldest uh doesn't like carbonated beverages of any sort <laughs> and doesn't really seem to be too too into it so um you know my twins that are uh same same age as your son yeah oscar um uh, yeah i think they they uh they kind of grew up with the brewery and kind of realize like, wait a second, this is a family business. Like, wait, we're in the family. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, that was always, you know, I you know, we probably could have sold the brewery, but didn't because I wanted to keep it, you know, a Minnesota company and based here and a family thing. And so it'll be a bummer if no one does. That's for sure. <laughs>
0: well, there's the baby too. We right? got there's we got
1: right. a few more to go. That's <laughs> yeah. right. So we'll 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 see. Come, we'll do this. We'll do this again in ten years and see what's going on.
0: Sounds like a plan. <laughs> All right, now we can go have a real beer. How about All right, that let's right. go. Omar, I'm sorry. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Yeah. and it's really an amazing Minnesota story.
1: Well, thank you for having us out. It's great to talk about. It. Absolutely.
0: Well, it's really an incredible story, even thinking about it now. There's a lot to unpack, though, with the Surly story. You know, we didn't really get into numbers, but Surly is actually brewing 37% less beer than it did five years ago. And you heard Omar talking about some of the new beverages that are coming on the scene, and maybe that'll make up the difference. Who's to say? Well, we know who's to say. Let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, where Casey Freed is an assistant professor of entrepreneurship and has actually specifically studied the craft brewing industry. Casey, how did you decide to do that? Do you just like beer?
2: Um, Yes. (laughs) So I was living in Brooklyn, New York at the time. This was 2013, 14. And I started seeing in my own neighborhood, all of these craft breweries popping up. Mm -hmm. And just, it was just a great group of people. And so I thought if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna spend a lot of time studying and writing about something, I want to surround myself with great people. So So that's kind of where it started.
0: What would you say are your key learnings, findings from your research on the craft industry?
2: Yeah. Okay. So there's a study that I'm working on now with some co-authors and we're looking at kind of how their actions change over time as their business grows or as they've been in business longer in the industry. And what we find and what's interesting about craft-based businesses and particularly the craft beer is that we find that initially these breweries start out with, by sharing resources with one another So kind of like, can I borrow a cup of sugar type Mm -hmm, things, whether mm -hmm. it's hops or grains, and I'm trying to make this and I don't have any, do you have any? Yes. So there's that. And then from that, it kind of goes into a more of operational assistance and advice. So here's a technique or what kind of equipment should I be using to do this? And so we see that. But then the final stage, and this is where I think Surly and Omar's story really fits in, is that we see that the more experienced and larger craft brewers tend to get involved on almost an institutional level or even a policy level, right? Where mm-hmm. they want to have a have a say or some influence in changing the, almost the socioeconomic structure, right? Of, mm. of what these businesses are operating in to make it easier for new entrants, but also so that Others don't have to face the same barriers that they did. And this mm-hmm. is where I think Omar's story and Surly really fits in.
0: You described Omar as a policy entrepreneur. I'm not sure we've heard that term on the show. What do you mean by policy entrepreneur?
2: Yeah, so I would say maybe put quite simply is um, someone who disrupts almost the social and economic status quo, right? So they have a willingness to really invest a lot of their own time, their money, to make those big asks of, of friends and acquaintances to really try to change the system. And yeah, so in this case, changing regulations and changing laws. Mm-hmm. You know, Omar mentioned the kind of how there's a contraction happening right now with beer, right? And to your point, you know, what these breweries are having to do are the very things that the craft brewing conferences that he was attending Back in the day, like, you know, 2000s, I guess, 2010s, it was very much about independence. We don't want to, we know we're not, we're we're small, we're local, and we stand for more than just making money. We care about the community to now where it's like, like he said, we have to do everything just to survive. (laughs) And so that's brewing these seltzers and THC infused beverages and kombuchas and, and things like that. And also, I think with the younger generations, we're seeing much less just drinking Overall, period, yeah, right? Yeah. Which, I mean, I think I'd say is a good thing, right? And mm. from, from a public health standpoint. But, you know, for the industry, yes, they've had to make these adjustments. And I think that there will just be fewer and fewer new entrants. It's very saturated.
0: Do you, do you think, I mean, is that just sort of the inevitable ebb and flow of business? I mean, do you think it will? It will come around again. Do you do you advise you know young entrepreneurs like stay away? No, nobody should be opening a brewery again.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, I, I I don't think I'd say stay away necessarily, but definitely kind of know what you're getting into. You know, in terms of not only the business aspect that and how the industry contracting and everything, but that there is there's a culture. Craft.
0: I want to end with just one big existential question, then we can all look forward to reading your, your research, which I'm sure will provide even more light and perspective. But basically, w- when you start out as a craft brewer, or, you know, kind of an independent in any field, and your idea and objective is to grow, are those two things basically fundamentally at odds? You, you can't maintain your initial Kind of energy and and perspective, if you're going to grow,
2: right? Well, I I think that that yes, there is that tension, and actually, that's what we're looking at right now. Actually, we're collecting data now on. I'll, I'll use an analogy from the film industry, right? Star Wars was when that was made back in the 70s. George Lucas was like it was scrappy. He had to he had to use what he had at hand. He couldn't rely on all the big studios as much as, as, he, as he'd, he'd have liked to. Huge success. And then I think he himself has even said it at some point. He, he became the very thing he was fighting against, right? right? He hated right. the studios, then he was a studio, right? Yeah. And so here we have uh, this craft brewery, Surly, that, you know, they were, I mean, look at the name of their, their beers, like Furious, right. Todd the Axeman. I mean, that, you go back to when they started, that's insane. That nobody. That's a beer, what? Yeah. So it generated a lot of excitement, a lot of buzz, and it was kind of, um, you know, it, it's, it's exciting, right? Mm-hmm. But then as they get bigger, to your point, then how, how do you keep those values, right? right. And that scrappiness while, still, while becoming larger and larger.
0: Right. I think it's, it's sort of the age-old struggle of all business, right? I mean, you know, you, you want to get bigger and then you get bigger and, and you, it, it, it's hard to, hard to hold on to that character. But I guess that's, yeah. that's sort of the ultimate
2: challenge. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is.
0: Okay. Well, Casey Freed, thank you so much for your perspective. Are are there any studies coming out that we should be on the lookout for from you?
2: So things in academia move pretty slowly. So (laughs) what we're working on now, I'm excited to tell you, you'll be able to read in about three years. So. Okay, in about three years. You know what? We'll go have a couple of beers while we're waiting. Sounds good.
0: Casey Freed, thank you so much for your time. And thank you to our presenting partner, the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. You can learn more about our show and find past episodes by going to tcbmag.com slash by all means. Thanks so much for listening to By All Means. to make By All Means and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Forliddy. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Dean Laura Dunham for all their support. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thank you for listening to By All Means.